0: So today we're doing our third in a part of repenting from sin and accepting Jesus as Savior. This is three of three, so this is the end, okay? So this is the one that pulls it together. A few things, just in context, that we've been talking about is that the good news of the kingdom of God is the good news of Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King. Now we're going to be talking about Jesus as Savior, which is extremely important because we are in desperate need of being saved and I like to use the word rescued because that helps me understand it better the Lord kind of shows me a pit of alligators and I'm in the middle of it and you need to be rescued it's not a minor thing you're in a pit of alligators you are in a lion's den and they're hungry you need to be rescued So it's very important that we recognize that Jesus is our Savior, and we'll be talking about Jesus as our Lord and King beyond this, but this emphasis today is repentance from sin and accepting Jesus as our Savior. And Jesus as our Savior, Lord, and King is good tidings of great joy. Good tidings of great joy. But it's also very serious good tidings. It's not good tidings that we can listen to and say, Oh, that's nice. I think I'll go watch this football game. It's very serious. And to treat God as common is a huge problem rooted in pride. To treat God as common is a huge problem rooted in pride. And in Romans 1, Paul just lays into it and said, They knew God was the creator. And yet they treated him as common, and they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. It's so important that God be exalted as holy, not just from the words of our lips, but from our hearts. And he searches our hearts. And God's plan, then, is that we maximize that fellowship with him. And we're going to talk more about that today, because being saved is so key in ripping the veil to be be able to enter into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God is. Satan's plan then exactly is to minimize our fellowship with Jesus. All preaching of the gospel is the preaching of Jesus. That's the preaching of the gospel. The gospel of the good news is Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King. And that God's heart is not very much sought after by his people. Many people want to find God's principles and extract things from God, and then use them for their own purposes. But God is not looking for people like that. Just as in David's time, he is looking for people who are after his heart, who search for his heart. And in the Scripture, it says that God's heart was to bless us. His heart was to bless us starting in the garden. Even after the garden, his heart was to bless us in the Old Covenant, and his heart is to bless us in the New Covenant. And the Bible says, you know, those words where it said God comes and walks in the garden in Genesis, those are the same things, the same words that talk about the Shekinah presence of God sharing with us. It isn't just a little man walking over there that you go talk to. It was the presence of God that invaded the garden. And in the Old Covenant, he said, I want, I am your husband, is what he said in Jeremiah 31, 32. I am your husband, is what he said to Israel. I love you that much. And when you gather together me, the hallmark of gathering in the feasts that you come to me, the hallmark of those gatherings is rejoicing. I want you to come together so we can rejoice. And bring everybody in your house and everybody who's visiting in your city and the sojourner who is passing through, bring him so that when we come together we can rejoice. God's heart is to bless However, sin separates us from that blessing, which we're talking about today. But God is constantly examining our heart, and inside of our heart, he wants us to be loving him. You know, Jesus had stark words to say for those who worshiped with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. He had stark things to say about that. It's very, very important that our hearts are with him. So in the basic equipping of every saint, we're emphasizing five things. The first is repentance from sin and the bondage of sin. The second is accepting Jesus as Savior. The third is accepting Jesus as Lord and King. The fourth is being baptized in water. And the fifth is being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the emphasis that we're putting here is this is the basic starting package. This is the starting package. When you buy a PC, you have got to get the regular PC thing, you've got to get a monitor, you've got to have a keyboard, and most of us have to have a mouse, okay? And you'd go, well, that's just the starting package. This is just the starting package. It is a terrible thing that Christians are trying to work their computers with no monitors. But many Christians are doing that. It is a horrible thing to try to walk the Christian life without being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is very, very hard to do. So the scripture lays out these as the basic equipping of the saints, that we're all to come together to have these things. So as you can see, we're right in the middle of the first two, which is repentance from sin and accepting Jesus as Savior. And as I said, we need a Savior to rescue us from the enslaving and killing power of sin. Last week, we talked about things that had to do with sin that sin hardens, that sin entangles, that sin enslaves, that sin deceives, and sin kills. That sin is not something to be toyed with, but that sin is something that we are to abhor. And one of the hardest things for us in our culture is to love God and hate evil. We generally don't hate at all, but Jesus hated evil. It says in the scripture that he was given the oil of gladness above his brothers because he loved righteousness and hated lawlessness or iniquity. He was given an oil of gladness. And it's a strange thing in a Christian's life, but once they love the Lord and they hate evil, you receive that same oil of gladness. You receive that same oil of gladness. As a matter of fact, I can mark in my life the times that the Lord put a finger on me and said, where's your gladness? And I said, well, it's a little weak today. And he said, I want you to love me and to hate evil. How are you doing on that? Well, we had some things to fix. And I just want to give you a testimony that when you fix those things and you love him and you hate evil, which usually meant in my life repenting of sin that I wasn't going to repent of, that's what it usually meant. Once you did that in a way you didn't understand, the joy of the Lord comes in. When you love God and you hate evil, that joy comes. But if you play with evil, that joy leaves. You can mess around your whole life and miss on joy because you play with evil. Very, very important. So we need to be rescued. We need to be saved from what sin does to us. We need to be rescued. And every single person that's walking around without Jesus is enslaved by sin and is being killed by the power of sin. And then God goes on to say that separation from God results from sin. Now, a verse we don't memorize much, but in my opinion, we ought to memorize in our top 30. is Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin separates us from God. It's not a theory, it's a reality. And when we allow sin to abide, it creates a separation. Now I share this, some people like this, some people don't, but to me this is very vivid if you have ever smelled a skunk. If you have ever smelled a skunk, you cannot go away going, well, it's a bit unpleasant, but I think I could get used to it. You didn't smell a skunk. If you have smelled a skunk, you will go, that is the most effective defense mechanism in the world is a skunk smell. Well, we need to think of sin abiding in our body like splashing on skunk perfume, that repugnant. Now, if I had skunk aftershave on or something and came up to Helen and said, "Hun, I just want a big hug, she would take a broomstick and push me out the back deck, you know, There is no hugging when you smell like a skunk. You got it? Sin is as bad as the smell of a skunk. It is repugnant to God. It is not okay. It is not something to be dealt with later. So repenting from sin was something Jesus made a big deal about it. Now sin separates us from God. It enslaves us. But there's a consequence to sin. And God is a just God. And in the old covenant, God made a way that there could be atonement for sin by the shedding of the blood of animals and the offering of sacrifice. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And the Holy of Holies was, was covered by a veil that had no seams. It was one veil with no seams. Big old thing. Well, you could go in the Holy of Holies once a year and I think it's interesting that the people weren't so confident about the, uh, the high priest. He was the only one that could go in, and the Jews would typically tie a rope to the ankle of the high priest. And when the high priest was go in, if some reason he wasn't a, you know, okay with God, who knows what's going to happen to him, and we can't go in there and get him. And so they had a rope tied to his ankle, lest they needed to pull him out. This was serious stuff. But when the high priest came in, what did he do that was so important? He went up to the Ark of the Covenant, and he sprinkled blood over the mercy seat. Well, the mercy seat was the top of the Ark of the Covenant. So the mercy seat is one of these weird words in the Bible. It's it's one of these, uh, this is the kind of word that will send you to the seminary if you're not careful. But there's a word in the Bible called propitiation, which is literally translated as the mercy seat okay, it literally translated as the mercy seat, what I think of as the word propitiation is it means debt paid. Debt paid. That Jesus was the propitiation for our sin. Jesus paid the debt for our sins. And when the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, then the people were forgiven for their sins. And that was the old covenant. And I'm I'm not going to spend a long time in the Old Covenant because we we may do it later. But Jesus came about and one of the things that he said in Luke 22, 20. The Bible says, in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup which is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. Now, those are powerful words coming from Jesus because Jesus said, I'm telling you, I'm bringing a new covenant. There was an old covenant, but now there is a new covenant. And if you want to deal more in it, just take a serious read of Hebrews 9, 10, and 11. And that gives a tremendous explanation of the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And I want to read some of those verses. But first I want to start in Jeremiah. Good old Jeremiah. You read through Jeremiah, you've read through a book. You know, this guy is prophesying all the time. And in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34 or verses that talk about this new covenant are the main verses quoted in the Old Testament that reference what's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, I'm bringing into this because the remission of sins in the Old Covenant was one way, and in the New Covenant is a new way. And so that's one of the reasons I'm focusing so much on this. So starting in verse 31 of Jeremiah 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. In the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Now, there's a lot to talk on in that section, but a couple of things I want to lift out. It's a new covenant. It's not the same as the covenant when they came out of Egypt. It's a new covenant. And in this covenant, he does things he has never done before, and he enters the heart of people. And he says, rather than the law being written on stone tablets, I'm going to take the law and write it in their hearts. The heart of will contain the law of the Lord. But the second and really glorious thing is, he says, there will be no need for everybody to say somebody else, you need to know the Lord, for everyone will know me. Now, when we say we know somebody, again, um, I I use a lot of examples with Helen, but you got to remember, we've been married uh, 45 years. I know Helen better, better than I do both people. When I first met Helen and was introduced, well, I knew her a little bit. I knew her name. I knew a little bit about her background. We dated for a while and knew her a lot more. But I want to tell you something. After 45 years of marriage, I know Helen kazoodles more than I ever knew her in the beginning. Now, that's the kind of the word know he's talking about here. It's not know about, but it's to intimately know. It's not know about, it's to intimately know. And Jesus mentioned this in John 17, 3. Jesus said, for to know the Father and the Son is eternal life. John 17, 3, for to know the Father and the Son is eternal life. And it's a knowing that is way beyond the knowing about. And this is a big deal because many Christians and many people walk around, I know about Jesus, I went to Bible school, I know the stories. Oh yeah, you're not telling me any difference. You don't know Him. You know about Him. And in 1 John 2, the difference between young children and mature people in the Lord where the young children knew about Him and the mature people knew Him. That was the difference. Well, you say, knowing the Lord, well, that could be infinite. Yes, it is infinite. As a matter of fact, we're going to do it throughout all of heaven. Whatever time is like in heaven, the thing that's going to make heaven heaven, the thing that makes eternal life is to know the Father and the Son. That's what is eternal life. I had a little bit of trouble because when I grew up, I kept thinking eternal life is everlasting life. But everlasting is just one aspect of eternal life. The Bible says eternal life is to know the Father and the Son. That's eternal life, and we begin that here. But we can't even wrap our mind around everlasting life. If I just asked you to think about living 100,000 years, our brains go tilt, tilt, I can't do it. We can't even hold everlasting life. But I'm telling you, the Father and the Son are so rich, so deep that eternity cannot hold them. It's a glorious thing that we're called to. But Satan is always pushing us, oh, that's just God. That's the thing you already know. You know about that. You've heard that story. Da-da-da-da-da. It's not intellectual knowing. It's knowing intimately the Father. And what's really great about this is the way that Sasha may know the Father can be different than the way I know the Father. Now, the Father is absolutely wonderful, and Sasha's knowledge of the Father and intimacy with the Father is absolutely wonderful to her, but it can be different than my intimacy with the Father. And it's because he made each one of us different. I, I love the fact that he made us. You know, he, he came along, when I was born in 51. He came along in 51 and he made me. It says in Zechariah 12:1, he puts the spirit of man within him. God puts the spirit of man within him and he said, I want there to be Jim." gem. Now, he didn't have a quota of gems. He didn't say there'd been five Ralphs, three Billies, one gem, it's time for more gems. No, he wanted me to exist. And I love that thought, that he wanted me to exist. He could have skipped me. Nobody was above God saying, you have to create Jim. You have to create melody. He said, I want melody. What love that he wanted me. And when I know myself from the inside out, I have to say, what mercy that he wanted me. But he did want me. What a wonderful thing. I I really, when we have children in the natural, you think you know how you're going to love a child. But when that child comes in, this love comes from someplace you don't know this much bigger than what you had imagined. You have a bigger love for your child. And if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much greater will the father give good gifts to us? So when he says this, I says, they're going to know the Lord from the least to the greatest. That's such a tremendous thing. And that's what he's doing. And If you look and see what Jesus did in his last four chapters before he left, read John 14 through John 18, those four chapters, and you'll find that Jesus puts tremendous emphasis on, Lord, they should be one with me the way that I am one with you. And he says it six or seven times. Lord, I pray for them. The John 17 prayer, praying for Christians. He prays over and over, let them be one, Father, as you and I are one. Let them be one with me and one with you. And he prays it over and over and over because this is the intimate knowing of the Father. And that's where he's trying to get us. And in the New Covenant, he says, from the New Covenant, instead of the law being out here, it's going to be in your heart and you're going to know him. Who is from the beginning not just know about him he puts on the end though two great things for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more now I'm going to talk about this remembering sin no more a little bit later but I want you to remember this verse because God has the power to forget sins we have committed God has the power to forget sins we have committed now I'm just telling you I'm working on that power but when somebody has committed a really bad sin against me, it kind of right now goes into a holding place that says, remember this, when you see them next time, you got to be careful this happens again. My forgiveness, I want to be like God's forgiveness. But God's forgiveness is He forgives the iniquity and forgets it. Now, you say, well, that's too good to be true. Most things about God are too good to be true. He can forgive forgive. And totally forgets it. What? So there's seven sermons right there in that one little section of verses, really great stuff. But then when it's quoted in Hebrews 10, Paul is pulling this out, and like I said, Hebrews 9, 10 and 11 are your really good chapters to read on this. But he points out, and I want to make this, this very big emphasis about how Jesus is the rescuer for sin, and that his rescue is a full rescue. His rescue depends on him, not us. And his rescue is something that he does by the power he has being the Son of God. So in Hebrews 10, their key verses are 11 through 20. I'm going to read some excerpts here. But he says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool underneath his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who were sanctified. One offering. Jesus suffered one sacrifice for all sins for all time. And we need to be anchored as Christians so someone says, yeah, well, I mean, I know he died back then, but that was for that generation. One sacrifice for all sins for all time. Where is it? Hebrews 10, 11, 12. One sacrifice, all sins, all time. And then it says in the end, it says, now where there is forgiveness of these things, this is verse 19 and 20, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, or another word for confidence there is boldness, boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So we mentioned before in the Old Covenant, there was the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. Now outside the veil was the holy place, but the Holy of Holies was the place where God's presence was. Now this is a very disturbing thing to me because only person who ever went in there was the high priest. Which means under the Old Covenant there was no one who entered into the presence of the Lord except for the high priest. But when Jesus died, we all know this verse, the veil was rent from top to bottom. The, the veil was rent from top to bottom. And what he's saying here in Hebrews is, listen, Jesus made an offering a complete offering for our sin, and he made access through the veil. And now let us go through the veil with confidence and boldness. Now, I don't know about you, but when I pray and get my sins forgiven, I'm awfully glad they're forgiven, but a lot of times I just don't have confidence to go boldly in like my sins never occurred. I still remember my sins. And who is it that keeps me remembering my sins? It's Satan. And why is it that Satan does that? Because the scripture says he is the accuser of the brethren. Now you will hear a voice in your life and it will be accusing you of things that the scripture says Jesus has washed away. That he has paid the price once for all and it's gone and he'll be accusing you. And I've heard voices inside of me saying, yes, but if anybody really knew what was in your heart when you were a teenager, if they really knew the decisions you made in your 20s, if they really knew the selfishness that guarded so many decisions that you made so it would turn out in your favor, if they really knew that you really hated this person even though you didn't, if they really knew all those things, no one would talk to you. No one would associate with you. Who are you? Because he is the accuser of the brethren. But in Jesus, there is complete forgiveness. One offering for sin, for all sin, for all time. I mean, you just can't stop getting excited about that. One offering for all sin, for all time. So Jesus is the propitiation. He himself is the mercy seat. There's one great song I love. I don't sing it, but I have sung it before. But it's, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. That is the message of the rescuing of Jesus. Jesus paid a debt. He didn't know he was without sin. And I owed a debt I could not pay. I could not get out of the pit of alligators, and he got me out. All the glory goes to him. But it is a bad thing for us to diminish the glory of what Jesus did. And when we say, oh yeah, I got forgiven for sins, but listen, I really got, I mean, I had some sins, and these things do still track me around. No, I'm forgiven, but you know, I was this, and I was, no, you're, you're not acting like you're forgiven. You're acting like you threw it up to Jesus, and you hope he got it. That is not the way it is. He forgives, and when he forgives, he forgives. The Bible says, we'll get to this first, he separates our sins As far as the east is from the west, they can never meet. He separates our sins from us. So when we talk to people and share with people, and and the Lord is dealing with us in our lives about repentance and being saved from sins, it's something we need to not only jump on, but to recognize in the Scripture, Jesus has done the full job. He did it all. When He said it is finished, it was finished. There isn't something else that we have to add to it. Now, in the Scripture... There are many verses that says Jesus is the Savior, Jesus is the Rescuer. And I'm going to go through a series of verses, not just to go through many verses, but these are things that need to be live within our hearts. When someone asks and says, yes, but could he forgive my sins? You see, I'm a bad person. We're all bad people. We need to have a verse that says, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person, me, you, everybody, this is the place we're in. We need to know those scriptures. And one of the reasons I'm emphasizing the scriptures so much is that these things are so important to anchor us. There are spirits running around all over the place with diverse thoughts and confusing things. So many Christians are confused. They have trouble sharing their testimony with another Christian because they can't get all their theology straight. They can't walk up to them and say, I want to introduce you to Jesus who will fix every single thing that's wrong in your life and is asking you to follow him. They can't say that because they can't figure out their theology. But we ought to be able to present Jesus as the gospel and then to be able to say the verses that say how great he is. And when people are in difficulties in life, we need to have the verses that say there's a Jesus for that, the Jesus for that. Uh, The Lord put on my heart, I was, just different things happen to you in life, but sometimes you get disappointed in people that you didn't want to be disappointed in. You know, someone told me one time, make sure you never meet your heroes. Because if you meet your heroes, they're not going to be as good as you think they are. Except for Jesus. He's better than you think they are. But a lot of times that's the case. I've seen that. Somebody talked to me, well, that's really an outstanding person. I get to know them and I go, well, they're okay, but they got some faults too, you know. But sometimes, you know, people are inconsiderate of you that you thought really cared about what you're doing, and they're inconsiderate, and they put an extra burden on you and don't think about how things are, and they start thinking about, well, this is a way that'll please me, and you, you could help out to please me, and they don't think about you. They're inconsiderate, and you love that person, and it hurts inside. But do you know something? Jesus is absolutely considerate. He is absolutely loving. He always wants to talk to you. He does not charge long-distance telephone. He always wants to hear your voice. As long as you talk to him, he's listening. He always wants to bless you. Whatever is a fault you find in another human being, Jesus is the opposite. And believe me, we find lots of faults. You're probably sitting there going, I got five that Jim could fix. Well, you probably do. Tell me about them. I'll work on them. But we all have faults. And we get disappointed in people. We are never disappointed in Jesus. He is always good tidings of great joy in every situation. And we need to be able to present him that way. But we do need to know the scriptures. So in Luke 2.11, what do we say? It says, for in this, in the, today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. In Isaiah 53.5, it says he was pierced through for our transgressions, or in the King James, wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5 said, This Savior is coming. He's going to be crushed for your sins. He is going to have the chastening needed for you to fall on Him. He is going to be pierced for what you've done wrong." In Isaiah 61.1, when Jesus was in the temple, this is the verse that Jesus read from the Old Testament. And he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. In Isaiah 61.1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And Jesus said, today this verse is fulfilled in your hearing because Jesus came to bring good news to the afflicted. Who are the afflicted? We are all afflicted. We are all afflicted by sin. People are afflicted in a whole bunch of degrees. We are all afflicted. Jesus brings good news to the afflicted. Someone's going to come up to you with a problem. You're going to go, you're afflicted. I have Jesus who brings good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Now, you have to have a broken heart to be able to talk to someone who's had a broken heart. You can't just say, let's do broken heart, but somewhere in life you're going to have a broken heart. Do you know that Jesus binds up the brokenhearted? It says, proclaim liberty to the captives. People who were enslaved by sin, Jesus came to proclaim liberty. And freedom to prisoners. The same captivity of sin makes us a prisoner. Then in Matthew one twenty one, when Joseph, when he had a a dream before Jesus was born, an angel told Joseph of of Mary, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. To me, that's a hallmark verse. Does Jesus save us from our sins? Matthew one twenty one says, Jesus will save his people from their sins. We need rescuing. He came as the rescuer. Very important. And Jesus himself said, and I do agree, this is really the best gospel verse, is John 3, 16, and I like to add verse 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And to me that is a capsulation of Jesus as savior. God loved us so much that he put a covenant where he could suffer in his son and that the world could be saved or rescued. And I'm glad that we have John 3:16s out on lots of things because it is a great verse to read. But Jesus as a savior. And Jesus himself said for the son of man in Luke 19:10 he said for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus himself said he came to save. Now, this is very important about the cross. Um, we talk about the cross. The cross is a very important thing. Jesus gave his blood. He gave his life. On the cross, he was separated from the Father. You know, on the, on the cross when he said, Father, um, why hast thou forsaken me? I believe that that was the time that Jesus suffered the most. Now, there was intense physical suffering, Definitely. But Jesus went on the cross and was separated from the Father. Complete separation from the Father is the definition of hell. Union with the Father, knowing the Father, is eternal life. But at that moment, Jesus bore our sins upon his body. And when he bore our sins upon his body, he had to be separated from the Father. Because sin cannot be united with the Father. And in 1 Peter 2.24, it says, And Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Now to me, that's a top 30 verse. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Where was the payment paid for our sins? In Jesus body on the cross. It's paid. Debt paid in full. Debt paid in full. Romans 6:23 we read for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. And then another great verse Acts 4:12 and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, this is actually something I'm not going to spend a lot of time on. But it's a great deception of the enemy to run around and saying, Oh, Jesus is a way. He's a nice teacher. There are a lot of other teachers. You need to have a broad mind. Take a look at what's out there. Be open to the way people approach deities. And he just dilutes down and dilutes down and dilutes down. What if I was young and my mom said, okay, it's um, time for you to pick up this thing that you just spilled and messed up. And I said, well, you're a mother. You're a mother of some people. And I hear a mother speaking. And I'll consider it from a mother whether I'm going to respond. That would get straightened out pretty fast in my house. I am your mother. I'm speaking to you. And there is not another your mother. Have you got that? This is God. Satan wants to dilute everything out to minimize our fellowship with the Father and the Son. And if he gets us to think that philosophy is the answer and we push these things out to the side and we look at it from multiple different ways and eventually a committee will come together and figure out a good way to make it work, he's diluted out the one and only God. Jesus had to flat say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, John 14, 6. He had to say it that way because if you don't say it that way, the next thing is Jesus is one of the ways. He's not a bad guy. He's just one of the ways. He is the way. And to say anyone else is the way makes Jesus and the Father common. Do you see? They are holy. And we're going to recognize that holiness in heaven. And you begin to recognize that holiness in the worship. When we get into worship sometimes and you get beyond the words and thinking, you sense that presence of the Lord and you sense the holiness and you go, this is God. I remember when I got saved, I, I, had, a, I had a terrible prayer of faith in my life. I'm not advocating this, but I was at Camp Glisten and I was praying one night and I was not... I, wasn't going to give my life to the Lord. I thought I was a Christian, but giving your life to the Lord is a big deal. And I, I prayed a prayer like this. I said, God, my life is like chewing gum and hair. And if you think you can straighten it out, you can have a shot at it. That was my prayer of faith. Now, I opened the door about this much, just a squinch. But you know what God did? He honored a squinch, opened the whole door, and changed everything in my life. And one of the biggest things he changed in my life is he put love in that wasn't you ought to love, but you actually do love. And I was having trouble because like people in India or an earthquake or Fukushima or something like that, I don't know those people. I'm sorry it happened, but for me to say I love people in foreign countries, I'm kind of lying if I say that. I don't even know those people. But the Bible says that God loved the world. Well, how how can God put a love in me that can love people I've never met? I can't do that. And I didn't have that love. And God was really good to me and pushed me and said, you don't have that. You need that to be in your life. I can put that in your life. And after I opened that door just a scrunch in about six weeks, I woke up one morning and realized that was in my life. I actually did care. I wasn't that I was just supposed to care. I really did care. Now, how could I go from not caring to caring? The Father, he does these things. And then I went around to people, and this was a little discouraging. Jane, I went around to all these people and said, do you know that God can put love in your life? And they go, Jim, we learned this in Bible school. You weren't paying attention in the second grade. You know, God so loved the world. We learned. No, 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 not the theory. In reality, he can write love on your heart. You see, he writes his law on our heart. And the fulfillment of the law is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and might, and our neighbor is ourself. And he writes it on our heart, and only he can do it. And that's that new covenant. So the Lord does incredible things and pays debts for us that we can't pay and transforms us from the inside. Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, there are 40 verses like this or so in the New Testament, but I'm going to read a few more. Colossians 1, 13, 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus, we have the forgiveness of our sins. Now, you might say, I'm going to be, I don't want to be prideful and say all my sins are forgiven, when we've asked Jesus to forgive our sins, if we say, if we walk around like our sins are not forgiven, we are insulting Jesus because he's the one that forgave our sins. It's an insult to Jesus. It's not us showing false humility. It's an insult to Jesus. Because, you see, Jesus said, I'm bearing your sin. I This blood of the new covenant is for you. And if you say, well, I asked him to forgive my sin, but... You know, I was really a bad person. I don't really know if people. No, he forgave your sin. He forgave your sin. Um, in First John, excuse me, in, yeah, First John 1 7, he says, The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And this is another one the enemy comes in. Well, he can forgive you for lying and doing this and the other, but, but a lot of people have done some bad things in their life. And they go to God and say, God, I know you forgive, you know, the kind of Christian he sins. But you know, I've done some bad stuff. You know, I've done, I, my mom and dad don't even know I've done some bad stuff, and I, I don't know about that. Well, there are verses in the Bible for that. And this is one of those verses. He cleanses us from all sin. Another huge verse is in Isaiah where he says, Though your sins be as, he says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So he takes scarlet sins as well as light gray sins. Have you got me? But there are things that are horrible, not just little things. And Christians have, people have horrible things in their life. I'm not being lied about this. He forgives the sins that are scarlet and makes them white as snow. You cannot bring a sin to grave for His forgiveness. And then then in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save, to rescue sinners, of which I am chief. And then it says in 1 John 4.14, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And First Peter three eighteen, such a great verse. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That Christ died once and for all. Galatians one four. He who gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age and Titus 2:14 who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession and then in Hebrews 2:9 but we do see him who was made a little lower than the angels namely Jesus who was, excuse me who was made for a little while lower than the angels namely Jesus Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So we read that the wages of sin is death. Jesus had to taste death, complete separation from God, for everyone. But he did taste death for everyone. He tasted death for me, so I don't taste death. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you have passed from the judgment. You know, when the disciples went out and had authority over demons and came back, and they talked to Jesus, this was when the 60 were sent out, and they came back and they were all excited they had authority over demons. You know what Jesus said? He said, it's not so important that you be excited about having authority over demons. You want to rejoice? Rejoice over this. Your names are written in the book of life. He said, "That's something you should rejoice over." Well, I actually like having authority over demons. I think that is something to rejoice over, but it's not to be compared to the fact that He tasted death for us, so that we don't have to taste death. And it says in 2 Corinthians five twenty-one, "For him who knew no sin, he made sin—excuse me, him who knew no sin—to be sin on our half, on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him." Now, many Christians struggle with this. How can I be the righteousness of God? Well, we're the righteousness of God not in our flesh, but we're the righteousness of God in Him, is what the verse says. He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, He was made unto us righteousness. It's a very hard thing for us to think, I am in right standing with God. Now, in the Old Covenant, God would look down through the mercy seat, and because he looked down through the mercy seat, then the people had their sins washed away, and he saw them as righteous or in right standing. But now, when we're in Christ, the Father looks the same way. He looks through the Son, and we are righteous not because we've done a set of works, but because we are in the Son. But we are in the Son, We are in Jesus and therefore Jesus is a righteousness and we have become righteousness in him. These things are hard to hold in our natural mind. But God looks at us and says, Jesus has imputed right standing with me into you. You are in right standing because of what he did and that you are in him. And we go, well, that's really very hard to hold. It's incredibly good news. Now, I just want to mention three things that are things the enemy throws up that he often tries to nail so people won't come to the Lord, and then we'll be done. Okay, so we're coming close to the end here. The first is that they can talk all they want to about Jesus paving the way and you giving your life to him, but really it's works. See, it's really what you do. It's have you got enough good deeds and not too many bad deeds. You know it really comes down to that. All this other stuff, That would be nice, but it really doesn't pan out. This is the voice of the enemy. This is what the enemy says. You've really got to put together the works. It is important for us to know scriptures, to be able to come back and to say to people and say clearly, no, it's not works. You cannot justify yourself by meeting the works of the law. So if you want to read more on that, there's a book called Romans and a book called Galatians, and they're very heavy on that. But I just want to read two two or three verses. One is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. And I want to give you a clue. If you could get 90 points on the scale by the works that you do, and then be judged as righteous and saved, the people that get the 90 points and judge themselves as righteous and saved would boast. They would say, look what I've done. I earned my 90 points. And the Bible says, before him no flesh shall glory. And no flesh shall glory. There won't even be a thought of flesh glory. So it's not by works of righteousness, he says. It is not a result of works. I've rewritten Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I don't have a whole version of the Bible, but I've rewritten those two verses because I want to explain it in real clear language, today's language. And I know we all know what grace is, but I've just rewritten it this way. By God's undeserved kindness, that's my definition of grace, God's undeserved kindness, you have been rescued from the enslaving and killing power of sin To be a child of God through trusting in Jesus. And your rescue was not because of your good works, but was a gift from God, so that no one can boast that their good works rescued them. Now that's Ephesians 2 8 and 9, Jim's version. Those are the same things, so that no one's good works, they cannot boast that their good works rescued them. And again, in Titus 3 5 and 6, he hits this right on the head. He says he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done. Two really good verses. We cannot merit that salvation. It's not based on our works. We've already mentioned that he'll approach us and say, you are too sinful to be forgiven. A very important verse we didn't cover was Romans 5.8, which says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were slapping Jesus in the face, he died for us. He not only said, love your enemies, he loved us while we were yet sinners. And that's evidence, the scripture says, that God showed his love for us. You see, the Lord can't find a person who is so far, he is far gone, the Lord's hand can't reach it. Uh, the Lord hit me the other day and He said, I want, you to share, I want you to share this one word. It's very important. He said, I want you to tell my people that my arm is not shortened. My arm is not shortened. There's a thing the enemy pushes out that God did things in one day But things aren't happening right now. His arm is not shortened. And he can reach down to every person in every situation and desires to do so. In Isaiah 55, 7, it says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55, 7. Our God is full of abundant pardoning. What is renewed every morning? His mercy. His mercy is renewed every morning. His mercy is renewed every morning. A whole new bucket of mercy every morning our God will abundantly pardon. And the third thing is God may forgive, but he will not forget, and you're going to pay for it later. It's amazing to me how much the enemy... Now, we have things in people. I've had things in me. I know people have things. And they are deeply rooted things. And some of the deeply rooted things that affect people are unforgiveness. They have a person that they have not forgiven for years and years and years and years and years and years. And And that sin has got a place and a dwelling place in their life. And it keeps them apart from God. It's a deeply rooted thing that needs to be repented of and let the Lord forgive and get out. It's deeply rooted, unforgiveness. Another is bitterness. And bitterness, the Bible even uses the word roots of bitterness. And it's down deep. Um, In medicine, we'll have these planter warts that are in somebody's, on an arm or something like this. And you're seeing the top, but down deep, those roots just go fanning out and really deep. And if you're getting a planter work cut out, you're going to have a hole in your arm. It is a deep-rooted thing. These things deeply root in us. Unforgiveness, bitterness. Some people walk around their whole life going, they always gave more attention to my older brother. He got to pick the college he wanted to go to. He's the one that got the first car. He's the one that got the first everything. I got the hand-me-downs. My parents always thought more of my brother and gave him more opportunities. A root of bitterness. Have you got it? There is no question we will be unfairly treated in this world. No question. There is no question we're going to know people who have more opportunities than we have. There is no question we're going to see things coming and the enemy will try to form it into a root of bitterness to keep us away from the Lord. If God really loved you, then this would have happened. Okay. Some people have expectations for life. but People have an expectation in marriage. Marriage is going to be this way. This is going to be this way. It doesn't turn out that way. And when their expectation doesn't work out the way they do, they get mad at God. Well, this was supposed to be this way. But I'm telling you, only Jesus is life. And one of the reasons he lets us see frustration in everything else is to point us away from everything else so we'll come to him. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life are big deals. We spend a lot of time on that. They are huge deceptions. And Jesus is life, and he is the only root to life. And God will do all sorts of things to get that in there. But he needs to come in and get rid of roots of unforgiveness, of bitterness, disappointment. People are just disappointed. They're just disappointed. There are some people that wallow so long in discouragement that they believe discouragement is their friend. That is the person they just talked to. Just, how can I be discouraged today? These are the things that promote discouragement. God can come in and rectify those things. But the enemy is saying, he is coming to us and saying, God knows you're basically crummy on the inside. Oh, you put on a good shell when you get together with the Christians. They don't know. But God knows you're basically crummy. You have these deep things. God will go down and pull those things out. He'll get them out from the core. He has power to do that nothing else has the power to do that why am i sick why am i dying my grandfather died at 72 i actually would have liked to seen my grandfather another 20 years but i don't know what god's doing i do know there's a really good story in the bible that says don't tell god when you're supposed to die it's not labeled that way but it's it's the story of hezekiah and hezekiah reached a part in life which was like things are going good the borders are peaceful. The kids are okay. The wife is okay. The grandkids are okay. Everything's going good. Life looks good. And God came to him and says, time for you to die. And Hezekiah went, it's going good. How about not dying now? And God said, no, it's time for you to die. But he said, how about not dying now? And he, God said, okay, I'll let you live. And I think it was eight more years. I'm not dead sure of the amount, but some amount of years later, 18 15. But after that, in that 15 years, he had a son who was one of the worst kings, arguably the worst king, that Israel ever had. Well, he couldn't see that, but God could see that. It's time for my granddad to head on. It's time for him to leave. It's time for him to be up at another level. I'm fine with that. We're just passing through here. The scripture is very clear. This is not our home. We are not of the Jerusalem which is below. We're of the Jerusalem which is above. We're just passing through here. We're of the Jerusalem which is above, and we, our eyes are on heavenly things. So the Scripture says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So um, another thing about Helen, Helen's in this about four or five times, Helen taught me how to clean a little bit better. I had more surface cleaning in my history, and Helen does what you might call deep cleaning. If you ask me to clean a bathroom, I'm thinking of the exposed surfaces. When Helen cleans the bathroom, she's behind the toilet, she's going into all these places, she is thorough and clean. You want to use a bathroom after Helen cleans it. After me, it's okay, but it's more of a guy's cleaning. You understand what I'm saying? The Bible says that God cleanses us, From all unrighteousness, he does a deep clean. God and Helen are on the same track, okay? They do a deep clean. He not only forgives the sin, but he cleanses from unrighteousness. So he goes into that area and totally redoes it. He totally cleanses out. When we confess our sins, he not only forgives, but he cleanses from unrighteousness. We need to be alert, because the enemy would be right on our shoulders saying, he did not you from nothing. And you're lucky if he's forgiven half of that. Oh, he's forgiven all of that. And oh, he has cleaned you down deep. Do not invite it in again. You keep it away, but he has cleansed you out. And in Romans 5, 9, it says, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So not only does he forgive us, not only does he cleanse us, but when we ask and when we repent, it says that we are saved from any wrath of God. That is just xed out. The debt has been paid in full. So where does this leave us? So where this leaves us is Jesus wants to be our Savior and our Lord and King. I'm focusing today just on the Savior part because so many have trouble with the debt For their sins being paid. So many have trouble with being cleansed from all unrighteousness. So many have trouble with putting the pain of the past out of their life and accepting the glory and the love of the Lord. So many have trouble in relationships. They just can't love those who misuse them. They have these problems, and Jesus himself rescues us from those sins. He rescues us fully. He paid the price one time for all sin, for all time, for all people. Paid the price one time for all sins, for all time, for all people. That needs to be live within us, because that's that big first cornerstone of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the big first thing. You're in a crummy place that needs rescuing. And furthermore, most people in the world know it. What I'm doing, I need rescuing. He is a great rescuer. He is a great savior. And he can deliver us from the power of sin and death. And not only can he, he wants to. And he wants to with the most loving heart that we can possibly imagine. Let's bow our heads. Father, you are absolutely great. And what you have done with your Son, we can only begin to understand. I ask that you put in our heart the glory of Jesus and how great a thing he has done rescuing us from the power of sin to enslave and kill us and separate us from you. Thank you for bridging the gap. Thank you for paying the debt we could not pay. Thank you for the free gift, Lord, that you have given unto us. We don't know how to put it any stronger, Father, but than to say thank you and praise your name, for you alone are worthy. Now, I ask, Lord, that you put these things alive in our heart, that we can share them with others. And I especially pray for roots of sin that have sat in lives for a long time. And I ask that you open our hearts so that we dive down and give you roots of sin that are in our lives so that you can cleanse us. And Lord, cleanse us from all unrighteousness and bring in your spirit where there has been death. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.